Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Assistant Professor of International Relations at Webster Vienna Private University, Ralph Scholhammer. His writing has appeared at the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, Unheard, Spiked, Jerusalem Post, many other publications. He's appeared on TV, such as the Sky News, uh, The Hill, and, and many other uh, outlets. He's also the host of the 1020 podcast. You want to subscribe to that. Welcome to GNE, Professor Scholhammer. Well, thank you so much for having you. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. So this is a very great honor for me uh, to be able to talk to you today. And uh, you do great work. I mean, I've seen your interviews, uh, your publications at Unheard, interviews you give uh, all over the place. Fantastic work. I think uh, we're very uh, like-minded. And uh, so, you know, I want to get your thoughts on what's happening uh, in, in the world, you know, globalism, Europe, uh, the world. And we have these global uh, elites, whatever you want to call them, globalists. You know, in the past, they've been referred separately as the trilaterals, Bilderbergers, but they seem now to have come under the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset uh, uh, umbrella. They've got some crazy policies, you know, the climate agenda, deindustrialization, and centralization of power and, and control. So what's sort of your understanding of who these uh, elites are and what their policies are? No, I think that's that is a good description, and, and to be honest, I also like the term "the elites." And some people, you know, uh, they they, uh, uh, they they start to roll their eyes if they hear the elites or the globalists. But I think that is a fair description. There is a group of people, particularly in the West, Western world, uh, who can afford a certain lifestyle, who don't feel any particular attachment. Uh, to their place of birth, to traditions, uh, to the way of life and the values that a significant proportion of the population in the West is actually still holding. And I think it is absolutely fair to describe them as, as globalists or elites or something like that. In fact, just to give you a very quick example of this, um, I'm a huge fan of the university I'm working at. So, so it's because they give me a lot of freedom. They allow me to, to voice my opinions. But even there, if I look at the curriculum, like we have a set of mandatory courses for all students. And, and that set of courses is called like officially, you know, in the catalog, the global citizenship program. So we have it even in the curriculum, right? This idea there is something like a global citizen that the cosmopolitan who, you know, who, who, who thinks and lives beyond borders and beyond the, the supposedly uh, outdated uh, modes of thinking of the past. So, so, and, and that's a little bit part of the, the cultural milieu in which a lot of the leading figures today, both in the media and politics, and of course, academia as well, are marinated. And I think this is exactly what we what we see also unfolding in, uh, in, in the current world, because many of their views, I would argue, are now colliding with reality. And I think we have to, to look at two things, right? One is, what are these policies? And I think we're going to look at that in greater detail in just a second. And the other thing I feel we have to look at is what motivates them. Uh, and I think you have wrestled with this idea and discussed about it very interestingly with a lot of fantastic people on your podcast. So I can only repeat what I said before. Everybody who hears this, uh, please subscribe to Geopolitics and Empire and listen to all the other conversations uh, as well. After you listen to this one, of course. Um, but... But I've wrestled with this question as well, and, and I came across something, and I'm sure you've heard about this, like every many people have heard about it, but not many people have read it. So the Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter, uh, who's, who's very much known for his writing on the business cycle and the, 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 the idea of creative destruction, uh, he wrote in the 1940s this really interesting book called Socialism, Capitalism, and Democracy. And just to, to summarize it, he makes this very interesting argument in this book where he says economically capitalism is unbeatable, right? The, the economic system of capitalism in the, the amount of material wealth it produces cannot be matched by any other system. And I think the empirical evidence bears that argument out. So I think in that way, Schumpeter was right. But Schumpeter says he doesn't think that ultimately kind of the free market or everything we would uh, connect with the capitalist system does survive. Because he argues it is so successful, it creates so much wealth that capitalist societies can create a completely new class. So it's not just the working class and the bourgeois. He says there is another class that he calls the intellectual class. And he kind of in a nutshell basically says this intellectual class has two problems. One is they are, I say, now these are my words, not Schumpeter's words, 
they're full of themselves, right? They think they know better than anybody else, but they also feel they never get the, the recognition or the admiration that they deserve. And secondly, they have the problem due to the successes of the capitalist system, they are lacking, I guess, what we would call an existential struggle. You know, kind of, kind of you know, the, the, the true challenges to overcome uh, are very hard to find because at least some of the basic human challenges, you know, food, shelter, these kind of things, are more, not perfectly, but are more or less resolved. So the only thing that they have left is to turn against their own civilization, right? Is to turn the, against their own societies, is to turn against the traditions, the values, the virtues that made the very society in which they live possible. And I think this is a little bit what we see, see with the globalists and the elites. I think they fall exactly into this category of what Schumpeter was describing, right? It's a group of people that is fantastically wealthy. Many of them are at least IQ and, uh, you know, credential-wise, uh, uh, very intelligent, very smart people. But their policies reflect exactly this. I mean, they are at war with agriculture. They are at war with, you know, nationalism, with borders. They are at war with, you know, certain traditional way of life. They're at war with the family. So, and, and these for me are all bits and pieces of this kind of finding an existential struggle via struggling against your own, you, you know, kind of your own roots, if, if you want. I know this might sound a little bit exaggerated, but I think it's important to look at this this way, because what we didn't see then is that many fronts in the so-called culture wars, right, whether it's it's the, the economic areas, but also if it's, it's the gender areas, if it's a question of migration, I think they are part of a bigger picture, because all what you correctly described, all these elitists take the same positions on all these issues, and they see it as part of that, right? For example, after the recent elections in Kenya, when Christiane Amanpour then, then interviews the, the new kind of newly elected, I think, a leader of the of the victorious party in Kenya. And the first question she asks is about you know, LGBTQ rights in Kenya. That tells you something, regardless of how we stand, what our position on that particular issue is, but it tells you the priorities they have. Or to give you another example, I assume many of your listeners probably don't know this, but there were local elections in a, in a German state in Lower Saxony. Uh, and one of the parties, uh, to, you know, to the great surprise, who actually won about four to five percent was the Green Party. Now, they did two things after this election, which I find so interesting. They polled voters. And the first thing they looked at, what did they mostly care about? And the main motivation, as you can probably guess, for the Green voters was climate change. What else? Right. Not energy security. Not, it was climate change. But then they did something else. They looked at the income level of voters. And lo and behold, the group, uh, kind of the, the party that had the highest share of high income uh, voters was the Green Party. So all these things fit perfectly with what you so, what you so accurately described as, you know, elites and you know, this idea that you have very rich people um, who who kind of have this, this agenda, primarily, I would argue, for their own, let's say, emotional satisfaction or what uh, um, what Rob Henderson uh, a sociologist in the United States, kind of, he wrote an entire article, and I think he's currently working on a book with the same title, has called Luxury Beliefs, right? Uh, so, so in the past, the elites showed their, their being better by, you know, having a Rolex or driving a Porsche or having a private plane. But now it's also that the virtue signal, you know, certain beliefs. You know, look, you know, we are, we want to defund the police. We, we don't believe in, in, in gender, oh, all these kind of things. And I think this, this, uh, these are all elements of, of, of kind of what characterizes those who are part of that elite because there are rich people who don't see it like that. So being rich alone doesn't make you elite, just as being poor doesn't immediately make you working class. Right? And I guess we have time to talk about this as well. But I think that's really a big picture here because what I would argue is that whatever one thinks about this worldview, and you know, everybody can believe whatever they want. I don't care about that that much, but I think we have to be honest that beliefs have consequences. Ideas have consequences. And what we see now is that many of the ideas that these people hold are actually, uh, I know I sound a little bit dramatic, but I think it's its the only accurate way to describe it, an actual threat to the pillars that uphold whatever we want to call Western civilization. Uh, and I think this is one of the reasons why we see it crumbling. And I think this is one of the reasons why we kind of turn out to be so helpless uh, when it comes to many challenges, whether it's geopolitics or energy or you know all these other things that are connected to it. A message from our sponsors. It seems we may be headed for the 1930s all over again. Financial collapse, tyranny, and world war. 
I've already secured multiple passports, offshore accounts, safe havens, and escaped to the sunnier shores of Mexico. My friend Mikkel Thorup of the Expat Money Show is hosting the Expat Money Summit with 30-plus experts that'll help you reclaim freedom in this fourth turning by moving your life and wealth offshore. Protect yourself and secure a new life abroad. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com or don't and enjoy surviving on insect protein while stuck in the metaverse. Since 2020, Ron Unz of Unz.com has argued the COVID outbreak was due to a U.S. biowarfare attack against China and Iran. Jeffrey Sachs, the Russian Ministry of Defense, and others are now making similar suggestions. Weeks before COVID appeared in Wuhan, a top U.S. biowarfare official ran the Crimson Contagion exercise on how to protect America against infection if a dangerous virus suddenly appeared in China. After COVID appeared in Wuhan, it jumped to Iran, infecting Iranian leadership only weeks after America had assassinated Iran's military commander. Iran publicly accused America of an illegal biowarfare attack and filed a complaint with the UN. Ron Unz has produced a free ebook and is available for interviews to further discuss this issue. And don't forget to fund Geopolitics and Empire. You can leave a donation, except on Patreon or PayPal, which have banned us, book a consultation, or become a member. Very well uh, said, and basically, like, they think they're gods. I use that analogy from, you know, the Garden of Eden, where, uh, you know, the, the serpent tells uh, Adam and Eve, you can be like gods, and I think these elites think they're gods, and um and, and they're they're nuts and the as you, you just laid out the policies that they're doing is are suicidal and um and you what you mentioned you know i studied at the geneva school of diplomacy right down the street was a branch of uh, your school webster university some of my professors were from um webster and indeed you know I, i've had courses literally titled uh, you know, I had a course, I think it was called Global Governance, and it was taught by a WTO, a former WTO uh, um, official. So, yeah, I mean, this is the stuff that's that's taught world government, global governance, global citizenship. I've taught in the elite schools and high schools in Kazakhstan and Mexico, and the mm -hmm. high, school, high school students are uh, it's mandatory for them to do the model United Nations and UN SDGs and all of these yes. things. And um, th then so you, you sort of. You, you laid out who these people are, how they think, and maybe some of their uh, agendas. We can see, you know, Europe is the perfect uh, example. The EU, it seems to be committing uh, suicide. They're turning out the lights, sanctions, uh, shooting themselves in the foot, uh, you know, shutting down power, coal, nuclear, gas, um, instigating this war with Ukraine. Uh, I've interviewed folks, uh, as you know, like Michael Yan uh, and others, uh, you know, Thierry Maison, um, uh, Guy Maton from Switzerland, who say the Ukraine war will collapse Europe uh, and the climate policies will collapse Europe. You know, famine and freezing are coming. Uh, they say, what say you? No, I think I think I, I'm a huge fan of, of Michael Leon. I know Michael uh, a little bit as well, and I, I, I treasure him very much as a friend and and an intellectual. Uh, I, I think he, for, for my taste, sometimes is a little bit too much on the pessimistic side. I think you know. There is, um, the, I think the system is, is even if it breaks, uh, I think that there will still be, for example, famines in Europe, I find at the moment. But again, I might be too optimistic here, so I can't be proven wrong. There. But famines in Europe at the moment, I still find uh, uh, somewhat unlikely. I mean, reductions in living standards, oh, no doubt about this, right? Uh, uh, let's say increased prices per calorie, oh, absolutely. So, so. Many of the the luxuries or the the what we were used to in the past is probably going to disappear for uh, for the foreseeable future. So that I believe in. But people literally, you know, starving to death in the streets of Paris or the streets of Vienna. Mm, I, I'm I'm there. I'm a little doubtful. I think it will take a little bit more uh, than than the current policies. But but my my problem both with Terry and and Michael, despite my many agreements, is I think they are absolutely right in assessing the symptoms. But we we also have to start to address the the root cause of it and uh, the, what we can call the actual illness, if you want. And I think a lot of this can be be again kind of traced back to to a lack of again for 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 lack of a better expression. Uh, we have a crisis of cultural confidence in the West. I mean, there is to go back to the elites that we've talking about, and they are the main driving force behind this. Right, energy policy in Europe was formulated by the elites. I mean, this. This was not a, a bottom-up process. Uh, the, 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 the nuclear energy scare, the, uh, the, the, the renewable energy myth that you can power an entire industrialized nation with wind and solar alone, 
that did not come from a grassroots movement. I mean, this was largely driven from the top down. I mean, even nowadays, if you look at the biographies of whether it's Fridays for Future or Extinction Rebellion or whatever you want to call them, if you look at these movements, they come from the very well-do, very well-to-do uh, middle-upper class. These, is, these are not working-class movements. And I think this is something we have to openly say, that we have kind of the pressure from the, 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 the top but we have another problem as well. The top is very active, but as you described, which I agree, the, the elites are very active in this in this regard. So they they, they set course uh, to drive the car against the wall and over a cliff, you know, basically simultaneously. But they also have kind of tranquilized, for lack of a better term, the working class, the lower class. So this is a little bit of the problem that the assessment that somebody else who I, I'm absolutely an admirer of is, is Batya Ungar-Sargon, right? She's the, the, the um, deputy opinion editor at Newsweek. And she really came out, I think, one of the most important voices uh, of the working class in the United States. But the problem is that the working class has also gotten complacent, right? That they, that they you know, uh, a mix mixture of entertainment and government checks kind of allowed them a little bit to to make it comfortable for themselves in in somewhat of a of a forgive me if I use that expression for somewhat of a meaningless life it's a little bit of what Alexis de Tocqueville actually described quite nicely I mean for those of your listeners and viewers who read the Tocqueville and his democracy in America I mean the Tocqueville describes it almost to the point when he says what would tyranny in a democracy look like and this is what he says right he says well the state is going to innovate it's not going to be tyrannical in the traditional sense it's gonna it's gonna you know uh, kind of put you in, in a state of almost sleep you want to do something it gets in your way but it's also gonna you know it's gonna be a, a tutelage by the states that gives you just enough to to want to maintain the system even though you might know that the system cannot be maintained forever best example here is you know if you look at the the pension system in Europe. I mean, everybody who knows basic math knows that uh, the retirement systems in Europe sooner or later are going to collapse. But nobody wants to do anything about it. And even if governments try to do something about it, people go on the go out, uh, on the streets and protest against, you know, uh, retirement at the age of sixty-seven instead of the age of sixty-five. So this is pressure from two sides. So you have the overactive, the overmotivated um, uh, uh, elites. And then you have the somewhat undermotivated, uh, searching for meaning, uh, you know, spiritually emptied out working class. And, and I think people like you and I, we are fighting on both fronts here. We have on the one hand to point out what's wrong on the top. But uh, at the same time, we also have to try to, to breathe fresh air in those who are most affected by these policies and, and who are at the moment are very hard to rise. And it's it's a little bit uh, if you think about it's like an H. H. G. Wells time machine, right? Where you have the, the Eloy and the the, the 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 Morlocks, right? You have you have you have kind of those who live a life of plenty and uh, and enjoyment, and then you have those who who labor under dark, so to speak. And and I think this is really uh, this this is really the problem we have that that we, we have, and I see this actually as the bigger problem, right? The the the, the spiritual emptying, the creation of of or the, the the robbing of meaning from the life of millions of people and to tell them and this is what's happening to tell them you don't you know you don't need family you don't need community all you need is you know some basic income so you can buy a new playstation and the cheeseburger at mcdonald's and you know and you'll have nothing and you'll be happy but it's not nothing it's just enough to keep you quiet i have to admit i'm sorry that i'm done with my monologue i'm almost Relief to a certain extent, and it's, it, don't. I, mean, I neither want you nor the listeners to get me wrong. But one thing that happened with uh, with COVID, uh, and something you also have talked about with, you know, for example, the Dutch farmers, the farmers in New Zealand. If the elites, if they push too far, you might see signs of life again among, among those who were complacent in the past. Whether it's Dutch farmers. Right, whether it's you know the French working class, whether it happens in Italy, so so maybe this is on the same with COVID. I think COVID showed the people a little bit that even the most supposed benevolent government can turn tyrannical on the you know on on the on the turn of a dime. I mean, take you know, whether it was Australia, New Zealand, countries that three years ago we would have called the most liberal, the most tolerant on the planet. Uh, kind of switched to tyrannical mode very, very quickly. So maybe 
and particularly if this fall they want to return to these COVID policies. So maybe they pushed it too far so that there is a movement saying, you know what, there is more to life than 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 you know than than, than welfare and the government check. That even those who are not rich, even those who are not, I don't know, Instagram influencers with a million followers, deserve meaning in their life. And we no longer will allow uh, them to have them to be demeaned, destroyed, uh, uh, you know, ridiculed by again, quote unquote, the the elites. Whether it's the church, whether it's the nation, whether it's family, whether it's God. Basically, what uh, Georgina Meloni said in Italy, or what uh, Myra Flores, the the first Mexican-born uh, congresswoman, Republican congresswoman from Texas was saying, you know, their principles are three, it's God, country, family. Uh, and the, the, the sense that these three things under, uh, under constant attack, maybe this is going to rattle up people again. No, I think, I think you're, uh, nailing it. And, um, as you mentioned, I think, as you said, I think it's just, it's, it's a historical fact that it really just takes pain to wake people up. You know, they're they're not going to see it until they lose their jobs, they're broke, they lose their homes, whatever. It's 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 that cycle. You know, the hard times create. You know, good times create soft men, and then that's where we are. And then the hard times again create uh, strong men. But uh, you mentioned the spiritual emptiness, and I mentioned this often in my podcast because for me it was a powerful moment, and I think it's one of the key issues which you're talking about. I left America in 2006. I uh, because I saw this spiritual emptiness, mm-hmm. I couldn't. I couldn't handle it. Everyone around me, just sports, weather, uh, promiscuity. You, you know, they're not looking for monogamy or, or, or family. And you know, I'm not like I had enough. It was so empty. I just had to flee. I flew, fled to the Gobi Desert. I, be, I, you know, I found God, became a Christian. But um, I, I think that that describes in the Western world, especially the, the illness that that we have. And what what do we do? Um, in, in terms of waking people up or just in general, what, 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 what have you been thinking about in terms of how do we react now? You, you described this, the elites, the situation, um, you know, the lower class. It's like, now what? <laughs> well, I think that the, the first thing as always, and I think this is true for you, this is true for me, and I'm sure for most of your listeners as well. I think the first step is to say, is our assessment correct? And uh, if we look, because, you know, people can say, uh, you know, uh, how do I pronounce your first name? You need to help me here. Hervoye. Okay, okay. Hervoye and, and Ralph, right? I mean, they just pulled this all out of thin air. So, so is there any truth to what they're saying? And I think if we look at, um, for example, Jonathan Haidt, I mean, uh, if, if your, your listeners don't know him, I highly recommend that they, they check out his work. He's a psychologist, a social psychologist uh, at the Stern School of Business at NYU. He wrote a fantastic book called The Righteous Mind. So I really highly, rec- highly recommend it. And he's also an extremely nice person. And he has, has also written another book uh, called The Coddling of the American Mind. And basically, and he's a liberal, right? He's, he's, you know, he advised, uh, I think John Kerry during his 2004 campaign. So this, this is not a man you would say who's a, a right winger or anything. But he says we really have a problem, particularly also with the younger generation which is less happy, less resilient, much more fragile. Uh, so so they, they are like we are not raising a generation of, of you know go-getters, you know, happy, uh, life-enjoying young people. It's the opposite. Uh, Joseph Henriks, another, I think he's a Harvard psychologist. He wrote another great book about what he calls weird people and weird sense for Western, educated, industrialized, rich and, and democratic. And it comes to a similar assessment, right? But it says that there's something going on there. And the recent study did it recently said the same. We are less happy than we were 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. I mean, you described just a second ago how you found to God, how you found religion. I mean, I have a very good sense that probably since that moment, you have been a much happier person than you have been before. And uh, the question, the question, I can't, I cannot tell you whether God exists or not, but I do, I can tell you that, that, that having faith uh, is that that's an anchor in your life. That's a that's that's a, a pole for moral values, right? It's it puts a yardstick or a red line into the sand uh, that doesn't need justification, and that is a good thing, right? Certain moral values shouldn't be you know not shouldn't be up for questioning. Uh, there are things, as I guess my grandmother would say, right? When you say why is it like that, and the answer is because that's just how it is. Uh, you know what you said. Uh, uh, to give you one example, this is something they use in these psychological studies. 
if we reduce society, what is currently happening, to, to liberal individual autonomy, and the only value that matters is consent, right? The only thing that matters is, is whether, you know, it, it, it's good for me, but it doesn't matter for the rest of society. I mean, I'd be completely honest with you. Okay, then, then let's abolish laws against incest, right? Let's abolish laws against, you know, pedophilia, against, um, uh, against polygamy, all these kind of things. Because if consent is the only thing that matters, if we have, and I don't mean to go on a rant, but we need to, to look at this Honestly, if we say uh, a 10-year-old, a, a an 11-year-old, a 12-year-old can decide to go on puberty blockers, have their breasts removed or have their, their genitals removed or, you know, or, or kind of basically what I would call a form of mutilation uh, done to them, well, then why exactly would you not allow an 11 or 12-year-old to be in a, in a sexual relationship with a close relative if they supposedly consent to it? Now, People will say, oh, my God, this is extreme. Well, is it? A lot of the things we see nowadays probably seem extreme 10, 15 years ago. And, of course, the same is true. When, and, and I think this is, this is and I don't, I don't mean to get off topic. I always want to bring it to the one point. This is part of a larger phenomenon. So the same people that tell you we do not know what a woman is, to use the now famous circulating uh, question, are the same people who tell you, oh, we don't need fossil fuels. Uh, you know, all you need is a is a a wind turbine and a few and a few solar cells on your on your roof, and you know you're basically covered for the rest of your life. And both of these things are wrong, but they come from the same source. Uh, they come from, again, for lack of a better term, what I call it's it's a coordinated or willful attack on 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 reason, on logic, on on you know on morality, on values. But not because those values are wrong, not because that morality is wrong. My belief is, and that's what I'm convinced of, it's because those on top, I'm exaggerating here, but at the core, I mean it, they are bored. They are bored out of their mind. And so what is it that they do? So they need some struggle. This is, funnily enough, actually, the thing that in his, in his book, The End of History, Fukuyama writes in the second half of the book, he, he explicitly says, uh, a system that is that is you know that that that, that the, the successful liberal democracy will create a class of bored people, and if we cannot control their desire for struggle, they will start to struggle against that very system. And I think this is what we are seeing. Uh, and I wouldn't care about this if they would keep it to themselves, right? If if you know if Elon Musk has five children or six hundred children with fifty different wives or women or whatever it is, I don't care because he can afford it. But if these things bled through to the lower socioeconomic classes, they might then attempt to live that lifestyle, but they cannot afford it. They don't have the resources to do it. Uh, and, and then what you get, I think, is, is psychological problems, uh, degraded communities, uh, uh, weakening bonds of, of between individuals, or as, as to put a more academic term on it, you lose social capital. You lose trust within society and everything gets more difficult. Uh, and this is what we see now. If, if people only identify with themselves, if there is no longer a sense of community, a shared identity, then life becomes, it, it grinds to a halt if you want. And then the solution for many on the liberal, but increasingly also for some on the right is to say, oh, the state is going to jump in. The state can do it. The state cannot replace uh, uh, the, the, the bonds of community or the voluntary bonds of community. And, and we, we mocked this for years. We mocked the church. We, you know, we mocked the bowling leagues. We mocked basically everything that gave meaning to the life of the working and the lower classes. And now these things are disappearing. And the, 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 uh, the pile of human wreckage is getting higher and higher and higher every year. So if we do not do anything about this, uh, we're going to have a huge problem. And what we would have to do is having the elites encouraging a life of meaning, even if that means, you know, I, I don't know, Chris Pratt, right? So, I mean, there are Hollywood stars or people who kind of, you know, who I think try to to at least in their own lives kind of are exemplary. Uh, and and without that, I think we're going to have a problem. I, I'm, well, if this is a conservative viewpoint, so be it, then call me a conservative. Uh, but this is really my my biggest issue, that the the cultural underpinnings, uh, or we have taken a sledgehammer to the cultural underpinnings of our civilization. And uh, I don't know 
if once the dust has settled and we stand knee deep in the rubble, if what we're going to see is something we're going to like very much. Yeah, you know, in the in the Christian world, they say, um, you know, where the churches go, the rest of the nation goes. So it's kind of what you were saying, where if the churches were and the people in those churches were not doing their jobs, maintaining this, uh, you know, moral vision, then we're screwed. You know, the the, the government, as you just explained, is it's just things are just going to get worse. Um, and I think I'm making an objective observation. You know, you pointed out that trend. If you, you know, you see we had traditional marriage. If you go to many of the countries I've lived in, like Kazakhstan and um, Mongolia, um, 95% just view marriage as man and woman. That's it. And so in the West, we got same-sex marriage. And now you've got the whole transgender stuff. A, a boy can be a girl. Um, they're trying to normalize pedophilia now. I've seen reports in different parts of the world of bestiality now they want to normalize. New York Times is talking about cannibalism. I mean, you can uh, yes, see, I read that. Yeah, yeah you, you can see this trend, exactly what you're saying, and there's no end to it, and it's suicide. The, the end is just total annihilation of uh, of humanity, and just, you know, my, my, the final thought on the cultural stuff you were talking about, all of this is anti-human. It seems to be an, an, an yes. inver inversion, a perversion. Uh, you know, Putin called it satanic, this cultural war, this, uh, you know, wokeism, attack on religion, tradition, family, logic. I actually had that in my question. You, you you mentioned it. Do you see a peak to any of this insanity? I mean, you just said we don't know how it's going to end up, but um, any further thought on, on this uh, cultural uh, aspect? Well, I think that the peak is going to come, and this is what I'm afraid of. I think that the, the peak is going to come in the form of poverty. Um, uh, there is, uh, I, I believe, a huge misconception, uh, especially on part of many of the, the world's leading economists, and I hope they forgive me if I say this, there is still this idea that what's currently happening is just going to be a, another regular business cycle. You know, we go through a recession and then after the recession, uh, the, the economy is going to expand again and there will remain a positive trajectory of, of growth. But what we see currently happening, and you mentioned this before, the, the, fundamental, the fundamentals of European economies are withering away. For example, if Germany is deindustrializing, de I don't see who is going to drag them out of uh, of, of stagflation. But the assumption is simply, oh, it's going to happen. Well, is it? If the if the, the Mittelstand, right, the famous uh, middle class, uh, the small and medium enterprises who have been the backbone of the German economy, if they disappear, either they move to other countries where they can't afford the energy or they close down. So who is going to drag Germany out of this misery? And my fear is that that's what the other thing that I said about the elections in Lower Saxony. But people either stop voting. I mean, that, that's one thing that the largest party was actually a party of non-voters. But those who vote is still 25 to 30 percent for the Green Party. So at some point, and I love the Germans, don't get me wrong. But if you vote for your own suicide, well, at some point you have to accept the results. So this is, I think, one of the advantages still of liberal democracy. Uh, we can actually call it a form of suicide, right? Because you, we can literally say, because they make no qualms out of it, right? They tell us what the program is. And if people still go to the voting booth and vote for them, at some point, I can only say, listen, uh, if, if this is the choice you made, I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, and uh, and I think this is, this is the problem because they still believe, so many people, I think, still believe uh, in this normalcy bias that, that if things have been a certain way, let's say, since the 90s and they're going to continue like this and now this is just a hiccup. I don't think what currently ha what currently happens is just a hiccup. I think this is now, you know, make or break for Europe. I'm not worried so much about the United States. Uh, the United States, for whatever reason, there are some of them, they have many sources of internal renewal. Uh, but in Europe, at least, or at least in Western Europe, uh, I'm worried that, that the descent is going to continue. And at some point, it's too late to, uh, to, to stop it, right? Uh, you, you can, I think now you could still arrest it. Uh, but at some point, if those industries are gone, they take innovation with them. They take, uh, you know, training of the new workforce with them. They take everything you need for a healthy society slash economy with them. And the government cannot simply rebuild this. This is an illusion. The idea that the government can simply replace everything you lose in the non-governmental sector is, first of all, it's totalitarian, but it's also not working. We see this now because the only thing the government apparently can do, with some exceptions, is throw money at stuff. But in Europe, that money is rapidly losing value. 
I mean, I mean the, the, we were told 10, 20 years ago how the euro is going to replace the dollar and, and the Americans better prepare because now there is a new power in town and, and the euro will, you know, will crush the dollar. No, it's not. that If anything crushes anything, if the dollar crushes every other currency. And and this is my fear. It's not too late. But but every time we get election results, my sense is, uh, you know, the problem is that that as we back to what we said before, those who probably share our thinking have simply turned their back on the political system, and those on the other side are are increasingly controlling the political system because they participate in it. Uh, they participate in the media. They participate in culture. People who think like you and I, we we I mean, both of us are probably too young, so it is also true for a generation before us. Uh, we we forgot to to. We never fought the culture wars. Let's put it this way: we talked a lot about them, but we never actually fought them. And, and I think this is now why we get the 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 why we are in the kind of trouble that we are in. Speaking of Europe, I mean, the, the good news is once you hit rock bottom, uh, the only way um, direction is 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 up. And I've got you know from artsofmanliness.com right in front of me here, uh, Rudyard Kipling's poem where he says, uh, you know, um, what do you say? If you can make one heap. Uh, of all your winnings and risk it all on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word um, about your loss. You know, that's that. I guess that's the attitude we have to have going forward. You know, if if, we, you know, if things do crash, it's not necessarily the end of the world, but it's going to be hard times. But well, as you, as, as you said, you know, we, we, we it, we're committing this to suicide. Yeah. So. Let me let me say two things about this. Uh, this is true, I think, to some extent. And I mean, if you look at the history of Western civilization, it has been a civilization that that kind of went through renewal several times. I mean, we have an entire period we call the Renaissance, right? So, so this is so so there is this renewal, but but there are times when civilizations truly do disappear. Uh, you know, whether it was through external factors like the Aztecs or the Mayas or the Incas. Or whether it was because they simply got too weak, like you know the Egyptians versus the uh, uh, the Romans. Or for a long time, I guess this is how justifiably so. But this is how the Chinese felt. So the 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 idea, and I mean, I hope you're right and I'm wrong. But I think you reach a point where I mean, people are going to survive, right? There, there will be people in Europe, but there is no guarantee that that. And this is, I think, what many people still believe will be the case: that we will still live the life we live today. That we buy. You know, our cheap electronic trinkets uh, made in China. Because look at, I'm very serious here, look at those trinkets. Uh, 20 years ago, you could buy a cell phone made by the Swedish company Ericsson or the Finnish company Nokia or the German company Siemens. Those days are gone. Pretty much the entire cell phone industry is now based in China, South Korea, a little bit Taiwan and the United States. Uh, you know, what TVs do people have? You know, it's, it's Toshiba's, it's LG's, it's, it's all these kind of things. Uh, personal computers. So all these, you know, what, where are the social media companies that, that so many of, of us use? Um, what are the big new things? Amazon, Alibaba. So Europe has lost pretty much connection to all the new things that came up in the last last 30 years, we still have some of our old traditional companies, but even they are getting into trouble, right? You cannot be a manufacturing superpower if your energy is so expensive that you have to turn off your, you know, aluminum factories and your steel furnaces. So my thing, I don't know how you come back from this. Uh, I mean, I know how you would, right? You, You build nuclear, you start fracking, you know, you do all these things, but they still don't want to do this. And at some point, the, the markets, this is, I think, a little bit the advantage now. The markets still look at Europe the way that you and I do, right? I think they say, well, you know, they're going to dig themselves out of this problem sooner or later. But at one point, they're going to look at this and say, what underlying fundamentals are there to believe that Europe will start to grow again? And somebody will be the first. Will it be a huge hedge fund? Will it be you know, a huge... Uh, uh, institution investor, somebody will pull the plug and say, "We go out of Europe because we don't think that uh, you know long." So we no longer, let's say, go long on Europe. We think that, that that they don't have the necessary conditions for sustainable future growth. And then others will follow along. Then European pension funds will start to 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 crash. And then all of a sudden, the entire system will turn upside down, and everybody is going to say, 
we didn't see that coming. How was this possible? Well, it's already happening partially. And, and I'm very worried that we, we kick the can down the road. But I think we're running very short of road very, very soon. You mentioned my fellow Mexican and fellow uh, American, Mayra Flores in Texas. You also mentioned Georgia Maloney. Uh, we saw in Sweden a right party now come to power and you wrote uh on unheard i think a month ago you wrote about germans turning against olaf schultz um what what uh, does all of this portend you know for for example someone like M maloney um i see the danger that we we see these sort of anti-establishment populists come to power but then they often get absorbed by the status quo um do you think some of these people might be able to actually make any positive changes I hope, but I don't believe it. Uh, and the reason why I don't believe it is because even they, despite their temporary successes, are not willing to really talk about the problem. They talk about one side of the problem, justifiably and correctly so, right? They talk about the elites, they talk about the establishment, but they don't touch on the other side, right? They don't have the guts, unfortunately, to say, but listen, guys, we have a problem with those on top, but we also have a problem with you on the bottom. And what this means is uh, the age of the welfare state in its current form has come to an end. It's not sustainable. Uh, it's sustainable maybe for one more generation or two more generations, but then the system is going to crash. I think that as, as nice as it sounds, and this always gets me lots of critiques. I'm not against the poor. On the contrary, I care a lot about the poor. But I think that we made poverty into a state of mind. Uh, what we talked about before, right? That we, we turned it into a psychological, spiritual problem. And the welfare state plays a role in this. Uh, we need to reform the welfare state in such a way that it supports people, but not just financially, but that it supports people in finding meaning and purpose in life. There should be no option for anyone to simply choose not to work. A life without work is a life without meaning. Unless, again, if you have sicknesses, if you are uh, taking care of children, so, but th those are all meaningful things. If you are, I don't know, if you have a serious illness, that is enough meaning in your life because you're probably going to struggle against that illness for the rest of your life. And of course, I want the government to help. I want the government to help children, right? Children who, let's say, uh, are sick. I think there should be no limit financially to help, you know, children who suffer from whether it's cancer or something else. But I also believe that adults should take care, for example, of their own health insurance. The only thing the government should do is say, listen, buddy, you have now reached an age where it might be smart to get insurance. Self-reliance, responsibility are virtues that are necessary. And I think neither Maloney nor uh, uh, other right-wingers have the, the, the balls, I mean, that might be the, the wrong term, but have the, the courage to say that. Because even Maloney got into office and was immediately talking about how they're going to expand the welfare state and how they're going to expand social services. If you do this in three or four generations, there will be no Italians left. And any policy, you cannot describe a policy as nationalist or God, country, family based if its consequences are less of your people. Let's put it this way, right? So, so they need to, to, to see this as well. It's not enough to be against migration. It's important. It's not enough to criticize, you know, the, the global elites. It's it's important. It's not enough. There is a problem in the working class, in the lower classes, in the middle class as well. Not addressing that elephant in the room will make all these victories meaningless. So my proposal, and I'm actually playing with this idea, to, to found a party and call it the one-time party. What the program basically is saying, voters into office, uh, we make all the necessary reforms. You're going to hate us after five years and vote us out. But once we have put all these things in place, hopefully enough of them will remain to kind of keep the thing going. Uh, but that's the problem. Nobody wants to, to, to touch on the uncomfortable things because they're afraid of losing elections. However, last point on this, I think people intuitively understand it. I think people know that it can't go on like this. But as long as somebody tells them, no, no. Don't worry. It's not a problem. We got it figured out. They say, well, if they say so, don't they know better? I think they would go for a candidate who says, this is not working. Like there will be pain. But that pain, of course, also important. That pain must be distributed. Right? It cannot be that only then again, those who don't have much are bearing the brunt 
of the negative consequences. But something is going to give at some point. And I think we're still terrified of saying that. And the European model of, you know, staying in education until you're 30, uh, then work until you are 65, and then be in retirement until 85. So that's basically 50 years out of 85 years uh, where you don't, where you're not in, let's say, a productive stage of your life and where you are a drag on, on let's say, the, 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 on public funds, that is not sustainable. We can we, and we can quibble about the details, but overall, the current European model is not sustainable. And nobody, even those right wingers, I think, dares to address this. Yeah, all you know, good good points. I forgot to mention when you were talking earlier about the the collapse of civilization and empire. I saw you did a, a podcast with a high level guest on the collapse of the Roman empire yes. and i'm I'm gonna go back and watch that and probably get that book I, I mean, again i think your podcast is underrated and people should check that uh, uh out as well and uh, just, you know just a thought on the eu myself as a croatian citizen uh an unwitting eu citizen i to be frank i'm i'm just not a fan of the eu i hope it collapses what's your feel about brussels I, I think the the it might drags on for for a while, but I think that collapse is, is going to come sooner or later for for two reasons. Uh, one is uh, that they have been taken over. You see it in pretty much every speech by Ursula von der Leyen. I think they have been almost entirely taken over by by the Green Boondoggle and this this uh, again completely insane ideas uh, in the field of energy. But the second thing is there is a rift. In the way how how Western Europe and Eastern Europe perceives the the shared European project, I think in in Western Europe, you know, the famous Berlin Paris axis, they see the European future differently, let's say, than the the Eastern European part. You know, the Poles, the Hungarians, the uh, the, the the Czechs, and those. And I don't believe that those two competing visions can be kept within one political body. And the Ukraine war, in many ways. Uh, I think will will serve as a as as a, an, an accelerator of that of that development. The, the nation state, at least in Eastern Europe, is coming back, uh, and I think the idea, as beautiful as it might was in theory, I'm not opposed to it. But I think the supranational state, this idea, right? You have this this institution that ultimately are more important or more have more authority and legitimacy than traditional nation states, I think that is going to come to an end. I mean, I will say one more thing, uh, just real quick, because that's uh, something I also find at least interesting. With everything that goes on in Ukraine, and and I know you had very interesting guests on this topic as well, but the only thing that strikes me also as quite significant is this war is going to end at some point, uh, at, 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 in one way or another. But when I look at the cultural conditions, kind of you know matters of identity, matters of 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 you know kind of dedication to one's uh, country, to one's traditions, I'm not sure if, for example, a country like Ukraine, in many ways, isn't healthier than, let's say, certain parts of the United States or, or certain parts or certain areas of of the, the population in Germany, Austria, or otherwise. Uh, and I think this is one of the, the, just as a personal opinion, I think one of the reasons why the very elites we talked about who kind of disdain nationalism and patriotism and borders at every turn, like wherever they could, are now exactly the ones uh, talking about we need to deliver more weapons and more support uh, for Ukraine and to put little Ukrainian flags in their social media profile. It shows you their spiritual emptiness, right? They finally found a nationalism they can sign on to and my are they excited about it right finally right it's, it's finally they can feel good about yelling they cannot bring themselves to say vive la france or or long live germany but slava ukraini that's not a problem and and this but this again this is not about ukraine for them even though they claim this is about themselves it's exactly what we talked at the beginning of our conversation it's part of the spiritual emptiness so 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 maybe they discover Ukrainian nationalism. They are willing to give in a little bit in the energy and economic areas. So maybe that then also will turn out to save Europe. At the moment, I don't believe it. But this this is all part. So even the way elites react to the war in Ukraine, in my opinion, is part of the thing that we discussed at the beginning. And, and you saw this today. Uh, there was an article in the Washington Post. The U.S. government has no plan how, how to act in this conflict. I mean, this is 
It's astounding, whatever your, your position on this might be. But not to have a plan is, is you know, so, so everything they do is just reacting. But I think it's the same thing because it, there is an element about making them feel good about themselves. Again, I, you know, I, I generally think that redrawing borders in Europe is a bad idea. So I'd rather have borders return to what they were in 2014 or 1991. I leave that uh, where it is. But it's it's very odd that that this is not driven by a plan, by a strategy, by by here is what we want you to accomplish, but simply by we feel the moral obligation. And the thing about international politics is, uh, I consider myself in many ways a moral person, as, as I'm sure you do as well. But you cannot base politics and state relations solely on morality, right? There are national interests. And if you can not even formulate them, you just prolong a catastrophe and potentially make it worse. And we do see this a little bit in Ukraine again. I mean, I don't think it's entirely unrealistic to say, I, I still am more optimistic about it not happening. But the trajectory is one where at least the potential for nuclear war has increased. And I mean, that's not a good thing to happen. Yeah, it's fascinating. I never thought about that. You pointed out the irony and how the globalists, the supranationalists are supporting nationalism in, in Ukraine when it uh, serves them. And um, yeah, you know, any other thoughts, final thoughts, preparing for difficult times or, or, or you know, anything else? Well, the, the, the only advice I always have to people who look at the world as we do, and I do think that we are correct in most uh, of, of these issues, is uh, not to despair, uh, not to lose hope, but not, not lose our good spirits. There is one thing that I always find is the best weapon you have against uh, against you know, these, these elite establishment, globalist-driven agenda. They are utterly humorless. They are utterly humorless. And and this is for me that the strongest weapon I think we have potentially in this in this conflict is to 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 maintain a happy demeanor, to point out the ridiculousness, to point out the utter insanity of many of the things they are claiming. I think we can get many people onto the right side or realize that the proportion of the problem if you if you engage with the other side, but do it somewhat also in a jokingly way, right? Kind of, kind of, to, 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 you know, nothing. I forgot who said it. Um, I think it was Chesterton. I think it was Chesterton. That, that nothing can withstand the assault of laughter. And there are things that are utterly ridiculous. And I think they must be pointed out as such because it means we take them seriously enough to talk about them. But one thing should also say it's, you know, it's insanity, right? Whether it's, whether it's in, from the, the, the gender area, to the energy area, some things are just pure, like the, the German suggestion as they had a while, right, that to your, you want to replace all the cars with bicycles. I mean, it kind of is funny, right? It's so ridiculous, it's almost funny. And, and I think this is all the idea that you, you make solar farms in, you know, the Northern Hemisphere where they have, I don't know, 40% sun uh, uh, per year, I mean, slightly more, of course, but, you know, but when they have entire periods uh, where there's barely any sun, I mean, I think one just has to point out the the ridiculousness of of these things, and and that it is funny. And I think that's that's kind of always my advice um, to to see the, the the fun in it. And the second one, and I know that you do this fantastically with your podcast. Uh, we need to learn history again. Uh, uh, we have become historical illiterates, and I think a consequence of this is an incredible arrogance of the presence. Uh, particularly, I have to admit, sometimes among the younger generation, right? There is this 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 idea that they know best, and therefore they don't even have to engage with ideas of the of the past. Uh, I think is very dangerous because if we take a look at history, many of the problems, many of the ideas, uh, both the good ones and the insane ones, they have been there before. Uh, just this one quick example. If you look at, at the French intellectuals before the French Revolution, so from polygamy to, you know, kind of, kind of, no gender confusion at these kind of things, it's all been there because they were in the same position. They were people very smart, very rich, very well off beyond any existential struggle. So they very often, they had some good ideas as well. Don't get me wrong, but this is also why they came up with a lot of crazy stuff because they were in the same position as elites today. Uh, and this is what I always say, right? That the, the, the purpose of, of 
let's say, conservative movement, if you want to call this, is to articulate the things that uh, that the common person feels intuitively. And I think most people intuitively feel from all these areas we discussed that they cannot go on like this. And it's the purpose of people like you, like me, and others who are part of this conversation to kind of create this intellectual movement that is not condescending to the common people, but gives them a voice. And I think that's, you know, it's going to be a long struggle. But as I always say, if we lose, we can say, we told you so. And if we win and uh, and prevent the apocalypse, we can always tell ourselves uh, we might not get a lot of gratitude for it, but it's still nice to know that we 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 contributed our part to maintaining uh, one of the historically, I think, greatest civilizations there has ever been. As you say, if we win, we won't have to become cannibals, according to the New York Times. And on Precisely. Your two, uh, and on your two points, uh, you know, the, the elites are humorless. I totally agree. Um I've been, you know, I was in Geneva. I spent a time around these people. Not only are they humorless, the ones that do attempt it, they're absolutely bad. They're bad at humor. It's, there's not, they're not even funny. And uh, also, the, the point on history, like, uh, just my recent experience, because I was in Kazakhstan, which was part of the former Soviet Union, and um, uh, in, in Croatia recently, meeting some young Ukrainians, and, you know, Ukraine, part of the former Soviet Union. And, um, you know, five years ago, I met, Gorbachev and I was just uh, just for fun because you know yeah there, there were people they, they were part of the former Soviet Union so I would sh I would show this 20 year old Ukrainian a photo oh look I was I was I shake hands with the last president of the Soviet Union and they're like I, sh I showed the picture and she's like who's that and I've showed Kaz you know young generation Kazakhs photo of that and they're like who's that and it, it would be like me not knowing who is Tito in, in, in Yugoslavia? Yeah, Myself as a pro. Yeah, that's a and very I'm like, good comparison. It's, it's unbelievable. The youth today have no. It's I can't believe they don't know who Gorbachev was. That's their history. That's their recent history. Just a couple decades ago. Um. Anyways, you know, could you tell us about your podcast projects and and where best to find you? Um. I think the, the best way to find me is to just Google my name. It takes you usually directly to my homepage where you can find. Uh, links to all my writings, to my podcast, and to all the things that I do. It's a very old-fashioned homepage, I have to warn uh, your listeners. Uh, it's uh, I started it, I think, like 12 years ago, and it still has... I mean, everything's on there. Uh, so if you if you like scrolling, and, and so you'll, you'll find everything. Um, uh, Twitter is a good is a good source. It's a horrible platform. But uh, it has it has its its moments, and uh, but usually just googling, uh, I think uh, just my name uh, will take you uh, will take you right there. And as always, uh, just like you do, right? Everything that I do provided is 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 free, so there is no you know don't I'm, I'm not the, 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 the highest risk is you know to subscribe to uh, be getting getting a notification if there is a new podcast or if there is there if there is new content. But there is never any fees or anything, anything connected uh, to that. Yeah, I don't charge for the podcast. I just I put a uh, you know one minute, minute and a half ad. So hopefully, yeah. I mean, everyone else does it. You know, Joe Rogan, Alex Jones. So it's not too hard to ask for people to sit through a minute ad for free. Uh, Agreed. Content. That that helps you know me keep doing what I'm doing and gives me uh, money to buy tacos to survive. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. And, no. Yeah. And and it's 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 as you say, right? I mean, this this is I think this is a very small price to pay for 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 uh, for somebody who who enjoys all the hard work that you're doing. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll include all of your Ralph's links in the description. Follow him, uh, subscribe to his awesome podcast, and again, really uh, original stuff we heard from you today. And thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you so much. This was this was fantastic. I hope we can do it again. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms. 
Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.